0: Oh, the the weather brings life, doesn't it? Oh, the nicer weather, the t- warmer temperatures. It just, it just does. It it so brings life. Uh, I know it does to me, um, for sure. But goodness, what a what a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Um, you know, the the reality is one of the cool things we get to do as as a body of believers. Um, And this is so important and we all have to do this. I I started the very beginning of the year with this and I'm I'm never gonna step off of this. It will always be something that I truly believe in um, as far as the church is concerned. That is this, we have one thing in common. We have one great thing in common and his name is Jesus. And if we can agree on that and who he is and what he did for us, then everything else can be secondary. Literally, everything else can be secondary because when we believe and we trust in him, and him alone, then all those other things they're just not a bother, they're just not a concern to us. And, and then our goal becomes to reach out with his love through who he is, allowing him to create in us what he wants to create, and incredible things will happen. And as we do that and as you get to see new people and meet new people, do that, meet new people, get to know one another. You've all been places where you go into place and, and everyone's distant. And you're like, I don't really think even anybody knew that I was here today. Never let that happen here. Never let that happen here. There's just a couple of us to be able to do that. If with all of your help, oh my goodness, um, it could almost be annoying to some people. They, they, they loved me too much. They liked the fact that I was there too much. And if they don't like that, that's fine. They'll find a place to go where nobody talked to them and they walked in and walked out and no one ever said a word. Those exist. Never let that be said of us. Never let that be said of us. The passage today is Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. You can go ahead and start flipping there. We'll get to that here in just a few minutes. The question of the day is simply this, what must I do? What must I do? Have you ever asked that question in your life? What must I do to catch up? What must I do to get ahead? What must I do to get some rest? (laughs) What must I do to get a job? Students, to pass a test to get married, to start a family? What must I do more seriously to get over this addiction, to quit this habit, to get rid of this sin in my life? What must I do to be a better husband, to be a better wife, to be a better parent, a better grandparent, a better employee? What must I do to be happy in this world in which we live? Have you ever asked any of those or or something along those lines before within your life? My guess is the answer is yes, some one of those questions or something like it. Let me add to that question, have you ever asked Jesus that question? What must I do, Jesus, to accomplish this, to have this happen, whatever? You see, because he's actually in the business of helping you answer that question if you didn't know. He, he would love to help assist you in those areas. The text that we find today, we find an individual who seemingly has it all together. He was a legal expert, if you will, a lawyer of sorts, different from our lawyers today for sure, but he had a pretty good position in society. So what prompted him to ask the question? It was likely one of two things. The first option is this. Most likely it's this option. He probably wanted to confirm his opinion, his position. He wanted Jesus to tell him that, hey, man, you are already doing everything that is required. My life checks all the boxes. Thank you, Jesus. Now, it's also possible that he'd come to a position in life where he was asking this question, realizing, knowing deep down inside that something was missing. He thought he had done everything, but something was lacking. Something still wasn't quite right. Now, I add this secondary possibility because that is usually the position that I come from. I feel like I don't have it all together, and I know something is missing. And so, Jesus, what do I need to do? Now, this passage, it contains one of the most famous, if not the most famous, parable in all of Scripture. Complete pagans that have never even heard a word of God know an element of this passage. Absolutely, they do. We're in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He said, teacher, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? An expert in the law, it sounds like a pretty important position because it was. He was a well-educated man. But the question really wasn't that unusual. It was a common one passed around in Jewish debate. In essence, here's what they were asking. What is the most important thing to God? What's the most important thing for me to do, God? Which one, God, gets me the inheritance? How do I get in the family? How do I get my name in the will? Which one is the one thing that absolutely guarantees I get into heaven? That's what he's asking. That's literally what he's asking. And so Jesus reveals an answer, and within that answer, he tells us very specifically that this is not a goal to be achieved through our good deeds. In fact, you cannot achieve it on your own. But Jesus begins the conversation by throwing a huge watermelon to the guy so he could hit it out of the park. He asks the expert in the law an easy question. What is written in the law. How do you read it? In other words, answer your own question. What do you have to do to get eternal life? And so, the expert gladly acknowledged the question and said, "Well, all I've got to do is love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, and oh yeah, I love my neighbor as myself." Jesus looks at the man and says, <laughs> "You're right. Well done. Good job. Do that. Just just do that and you will live." You see, the expert literally hit that one completely out of the park. He replies by sharing a part of a Jewish prayer called the Shema. It's a beautiful prayer. It's found in Deuteronomy 6.5. This is a prayer that the faithful Jew prays every single day. And Jesus lets him know, hey, you're right. Your answer, absolutely correct. Here's the problem. Just because you know the answer doesn't mean, A, that you know what it means, and B, that you actually do it, that you live it. In order to love God with all of your being, then you have to live out that love in your own life. You cannot claim to love God and not love others the same way that God does. So the expert thinking, he's got it all together, asks a follow-up question. You see, in his mind, what Jesus has just done is actually affirm what he already thought. He affirmed what he thought to be true. In his mind, he's good to go. I love God. I love my fellow Jews. I'm in. I'm all set. So the purpose of his next question is really just to seal the deal, to make sure, all right, yeah, good. I'm good. I'm in heaven. I've inherited eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. That was awesome. You see, in Jewish culture, only a fellow Jew was considered to be a neighbor. Gentiles weren't neighbors for sure, and Samaritans definitely weren't. The lawyer was implying that he has fulfilled the entire law with respect to to keeping a a relationship with his Jews, the, the love of his fellow Jews, and then keeping the law. Therefore, he has earned eternal life by complying with that law, not through a personal relationship with his God. The lawyer thought he got the answer he wanted from Jesus and was probably ready to go on his way. Jesus was supposed to say, oh, you're right, your neighbors, that's right, your neighbors are your fellow Jews, the, the people that look like you, the people that dress like you, the people that act like you, the people that think like you, yes, those are your neighbors. It's almost like in Jesus' time period, everyone was separated into these smaller factions, and the groups of people really didn't get along all that well. In fact, they really didn't have much of a use for each other. I'm so glad that has changed, aren't you? It is amazing. There are no divisions in America today, are there? To anyone that ever tells you, or if maybe you've ever had the thought that Jesus' teachings are outdated or irrelevant, I challenge you and them to listen with an open heart and an open mind. Because instead, Jesus shares maybe the most famous story he ever shared. And he allows the individual that's questioning him to determine, to define what a neighbor is all by himself. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, well, okay. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and he saw him, and he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn to take care of him. The next day he took two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses that you have. And then he asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell Into the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him, Jesus said, Go and do likewise. Now we've read the whole story. Let's pick it completely apart. This is a parable. The events that unfold in this story are not real, and they're not based on a true story. But they do mirror what happened and happens in real life very well. As a matter of fact, what happened to this man in this fictitious example really seems to be on the news every single night, doesn't it? Someone robbed, someone beaten, someone left for dead. And occasionally you watch those stories and you hear about a good stepping in to help out, don't you? Even the greatest pagan that has no idea anything about the word of God knows that word and knows something about that story, don't they? Most of the time, unfortunately, in our society, we actually just read about the latest victim, though. Now, those are sensational examples, but they're absolute truth in our society. How many other people among us are heartbroken, depressed, paralyzed by fear or anxiety? The powers of this world are destroying people around us every day, and they are left lying on the side of the road, spiritually dying. They might be in this room today. Jesus uses this as illustration because it's real life to them this really happened. It was a dangerous stretch of road that he was referring to. Everybody knew where he was talking about. The man that he was speaking with definitely would have understood what he was talking about. Unfortunately, in our civilized world, um, these attacks are becoming more and more common as well, making this parable even more and more relevant to our world today if nothing else, as a conversation piece from a physical standpoint. People know what you're saying. So I want to begin by pointing out a huge difference in reporting about the victim. How did Jesus tell us about this person? He said it was a man. According to today's reporting, today's journalism as we call it, what's missing? It's usually actually the very first thing reported, Jesus doesn't give us the man's ethnicity. He doesn't give us the color of his skin. He doesn't tell us if the man is rich or the man is poor. He doesn't tell us where the man is from. Why? Aren't these things really important? No. The man was in need. Nothing else mattered. Nothing should discourage the Christ follower from helping a person in need, period. Period. There is no judgment of the victim here, nor should there be evil had happened to him. We should respond. Jesus does not allow distinctions to be made when it comes to the treatment of people. We've got to know that, church. That's what separates us from everyone else. Jesus next intentionally identifies the other characters in the story, though, the priest and the Levite, who both should have helped out. This man was in need. For those that were listening to Jesus in that crowd on that day, when Jesus brought up the priest, my guess is he paused. It wasn't just one long sentence. There was a pause there to allow people to think. The crowd might have gotten excited like, yeah, here comes the hero. Here comes somebody that's going to swoop in and help this poor, unfortunate soul. Yay. The priest should have brought hope. He should have brought healing to the injured person, but he did not. The Levite Should have done the same. Now here's what's really cool. You can go and you can find commentaries on this story. And you can find all kinds of reasons why the priest and the Levite didn't help. But there's one small problem with all of that analysis. 100% of it. These aren't real people. This is a fictitious story. It is not real. So what were the priest and the Levite thinking? Nothing. If they were thinking something that was important, Jesus would have included it as a part of his made-up story. He did not do that. It's an illustration. Here's the point. They should have helped, and they didn't. The end. Everyone would have gotten that. They claimed to love God, which would have been the reason they should have loved their neighbor, but they did not love their neighbor. They turned their back. So did they love God? If you love God, then you keep his commands. He commands that we love our neighbors. So they did not love God? Well, not truly, at least not in their actions in that moment. Now, as the group listened some might have expected the priest and the Levite to respond that way because priests and Levites had a reputation of, of being a bit snobby, unwilling to associate with the, the common people. So maybe Jesus was confirming their opinions, maybe not. We don't know. It wasn't part of the story. But the reality is no one, and I mean no one listening expected what, what's happening next. Jesus is talking to a group of Jews. He's talking to an expert in the law. So to bring a Samaritan into the story, he couldn't have brought a worse image into these people's minds. Probably all of a sudden they had a worse thought than they did about the robbers that beat up the poor guy. To make the Samaritan the hero of the story was shocking and it was impossible But that actually went both ways, because to imagine a Samaritan stopping to help what we presume would be a Jew. Remember, Jesus didn't tell us anything about the man that was hurt, but we presume he was Jewish just because of the way the story was told. A Samaritan stopping to help him was just as shocking. There's no way he would ever do that. The listener instead would have been waiting. Oh, there's a Samaritan coming. Great. What's he going to do? He's going to walk around him. He's going to turn around and go, he's going to walk over and kick him. I mean, all of those things would have been what they were thinking would probably happen. Jesus flips the tables very quickly. He took pity on him. He took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey. He took him to an inn. He cared for him. (laughs) He took out money. He paid the innkeeper to keep him. And then he said, oh, and by the way, if there's any other expenses, I'll be back. I'll pay you then. The first two men had absolutely no love. The third man did. Two of the men were religious but had no love. Their religion wasn't what qualified them for the kingdom. What do we know about the Samaritans' faith? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. We know nothing about his spiritual condition, nor do we need to to understand the story. It doesn't matter. The third person had love, and he offered it to the one in need. How does he love? Let's look at every single way he loved. First, he saw the man. He took notice of someone. in he, he looked at him and saw there was pain. But seeing isn't enough. He felt compassion. He could have saw that person, ignored it, and went on, but he felt compassion. He was moved inside. Christ's love compels us to action. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Now, I'm going to bring in a Greek word here because it's fun to do every once in a while. The Greek word that Jesus uses here is a very odd word, and it's very hard to pronounce, okay? Very hard to pronounce. It's called splagnitsuma, splagnitsuma, and it's an odd word. Yes, Ken will be having a spelling test at the end of the service (laughs) for all of you, so if you want to slip out after communion so you don't take the test, I understand why. I want to share that with you because I want to share the actual meaning of what it meant to have pity on this man. The word literally means to be moved in one's bowels. Your stomach region was thought in that day and era to be the part of your body from which love and pity came from. This traveler was moved to his innermost being for the man who had been attacked and left for dead. That kind of feeling inside of you cannot be ignored. It has to be acted upon. So he sees the man. He is moved with love and compassion. Then he actually approaches the man and assesses his condition. He figures out what's wrong, what happened. He identifies the most immediate needs, and he begins to addressing those. Where did he get the bandages? Was this a traveling doctor? Did he have his little doctor bag like my dad used to carry around with him everywhere? He went to do house calls? I don't think so. I don't think he had a first aid kit. And Jesus doesn't tell us how he did it, so we're left to imagine. How could this man possibly have bandaged wounds? Well, he would have had to have torn his own clothes and his own robe. And he began ripping those things apart. And then he dug into his travel bag and he got out his wine to use as an antiseptic on those wounds. And he got his oil to put on the skin to promote that healing process and allow it to begin. This man has now given up his clothing, his source of food, his source of drink for the journey. This is abundant generosity. This is a beyond just, oh, yeah, all right, I'll help you up. Let's, let's get you on your way, sir. But then he went further, and he loved him more, and he provided transportation for the Samaritan to get back to somewhere where the man could stay. He found a place. Then Jesus slips in in verse 35, a verse that probably everyone overlooked. The next day, what's that mean? It means the man that was traveling and had a certain amount of time to get to a certain destination stopped everything and spent the night caring for this man. Then he paid for the man to stay there. It's estimated that the amount of money he left was enough to cover one to two months fare for staying at that inn. That is more than generous, right? But that's not the end of the story yet. The man then goes and he opens an account with the bookkeeper, a wide open account with the innkeeper and says, hey, anything else this man needs provided, I will pay you back when I come back through. Now, that's a bit much. Opening your entire bank account, your life savings to possibly care for this person, who would do that for someone? Seriously, would any of us do that for anyone? Now, I'm going to challenge you here for just a moment. You actually know someone just like this. You really actually do. Probably the first person in your mind was Jesus. No. No, that's actually not it at all. Someone has actually done this for you. It's you. It's you. You actually do this for yourself every single day of your life. Well, okay, most days. right? Most days we take care of ourselves, don't we? We feed ourselves, we clothe ourselves, we provide ourselves shelter, we even provide or seek out medical care when we need it, don't we? Some of us have even purchased insurance to help prevent those big catastrophic injuries and things like that from being covered, all to protect ourselves. So I'm going to ask you a question. What's the second greatest commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. Aha! Remember, the guy just gave that answer to Jesus. Jesus is now telling him, this is what it looks like actually to care for yourself. Whatever length you would go to to help yourself should be the the length you're willing to go to to help your neighbor, which is, as we know now, anyone. Oh. Oh. Now, Jesus ends this conversation with the legal expert with maybe the easiest question ever asked in all of Scripture. So, which of those three guys were his neighbor? Easy answer. But just because you know the answer doesn't mean you know what it means or that you're willing to live it out. Jesus is telling the man straight up, you want to earn eternal life? Okay. You can do that. Here's the perfect example. You leave here and you go do like ways. Oh, and do it always. And oh, do it for everyone, every person, even your worst enemy in need. You should lavishly, sacrificially, generously, tenderly, limitlessly, kindly, with an open account, give them every single thing they need. That's all. And when you do that, you can earn your way in. <laughs> Wait, that's impossible. And Jesus would have said, really? Huh, you think. Remember, when Jesus says go and do likewise, go and do the same, this isn't a command to Christians. These are fictitious people. The whole story is fictitious. This isn't even a command for a believer to love completely like this. What this is is an indictment on all of fallen humanity. We cannot, we do not, and we will not ever be able to love in that perfect way. Now, there might be a rare occasion when we show this love to someone, possibly, but what he's calling for is a limitless, lavish love toward anyone. That's beyond our capability. There's only one who can love like that, and that's our Jesus. And this is how he loves you, and this is how he loves Me And this is the love, then, that we are to pattern our life after. This is the love that we are to pour out on others to the best of our abilities. We're not going to be perfect at it. Our love for Jesus and our love for others will not be perfected until we're in His presence one day. Therefore, we cannot earn our way to heaven. We cannot earn His grace. We cannot earn His forgiveness. And the legal expert in this story could have in this moment, in this conversation with Jesus, his next response should have been, Jesus, there's no way. There's no way I could ever love others perfectly in that way. And so as Jesus was standing before him in this moment, literally, Jesus was ready to offer him forgiveness. He was ready to offer him mercy. He was even ready to offer him the gift of eternal life, which if you remember his original question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus was standing right before him, ready to give it freely to him, just like Jesus is with us today, offering it freely to each and every one of us. Will we accept it, this religious leader at this point, a legal expert did not? Will we humble ourselves and admit that we cannot earn our way into heaven? It's not possible. Will we admit that we need a Savior? And will we accept the free gift that He is offering you today? Now, for many of us, you've already accepted that gift. That's okay. That's awesome. That's great. But will you make a commitment to strive to love others as Jesus shows us through Samaritan? This is the perfect example. The perfect example. If we could get any of those elements right, that would be movement in the right direction, wouldn't it? And as we get along in our faith and become more and more mature, more and more of those elements will come into play. He knows we're not going to be perfect at this, but are we trying? He knows we're going to miss opportunities, but are we trying? Are our eyes open and searching for those opportunities within this very room even that are all around us? Are our hearts moved with love and compassion toward a world around us, or do we just get bitter and angry at the people around us? If you're allowing the Spirit to move within you, and if that compassion, that love for God, for Christ's love compels us, it moves us into action, if that's you, then what's God calling you to? Who is He leading you to reach out to It's the beauty of the reason we gather, to then share. When that happens, when the Spirit moves, when you're challenged to think in a new way, when your heart is moved to a new place, you are now left to respond. We're not going to force anybody to respond. We're not going to come hold anybody's hands and pull them up here and pray with them. No, no, no. That's between you and God. But we want to encourage you to allow the Spirit to move in your life to a point where you will come before Him. God, what must I do? Great question. He would love to answer. God, I've accepted you. Who? Who am I struggling to love? Father, I already know who that is. How can I reach out to them? What must I do to show them your love? These are the questions to ask. Please consider responding, not just in the service time we have left, but in your quiet time at home. Tomorrow morning when you open the word and you pray to your God, God, what must I do today? to show your love to someone. Father God, as we consider this famous, famous story, we realize that sometimes what we think the question is, (laughs) uh, we didn't quite get right. And what we think the answer is, we might not fully understand. Thank you for giving us your word to explain things more fully. Father, thank you for giving us your word to challenge us. So many today discount this incredible book that you handpicked and put together. They discount the words within, telling us that they're irrelevant, telling us that they don't apply to society today. Father, your love and your grace and your mercy applies at all times. Your teaching is eternal. And Father, there are absolutely people left, abandoned, lying on the side of the road all around us today. Father, some of those people are in such great pain, such great confusion. They don't know where to turn. They don't have anyone to help. Father, you're going to place those people in our paths to see if we will be your hands and feet. Will we be that Samaritan? That person might look at us like we're some kind of religious, fanatic, Jesus freak, crazy person. You know what? That's okay as long as we're willing to help. They can think whatever they want. We, we never get the opinion of the man that was helped. He never even says thank you in this story because that's not the reason we do it. Father, we see people in need and we're called to go and love them. But Father, not all of those people are lying on the side of the road, literally, or in our workplaces. Some of those people are right here within this room and they are hurting and they are in need today. Father, let no one in this room be afraid or too busy to stop and go to them, and ask if they're okay, and see how we can physically help them or spiritually help them. Father, this world that we live in doesn't care, doesn't care truthfully about anyone, and yet somehow, way, in your capacity, you care about everyone, and you've left us here to show that love and care for all of them that are near. Father, we love you. just Jesus' we pray.